Welcome to another episode of Latinos Who Thrive. I am your host, Victor Escalante. We're off to a great start of the third season of our show. Our last episode went viral, and I need you to know that it's because of your support. We're now the top 40 Latino show in America. So let's take it to number one. But enough about me. Today, we have a very interesting and unique guest, Larissa Jacobs. She is the founder and executive director of Fit Houston, a nonprofit organization that promotes free physical activity in communities. As the former vice president of health strategies at the American Heart Association of Houston, she worked with clinics and community partners to maximize equitable health and well-being. She has spent the past two decades advocating for healthy communities. Prior to joining the AHA, she pioneered and led a large portion of evidence-based programs focused on child nutrition and chronic disease prevention for the YMCA of Greater Houston. You are in for a treat, so let's get started. We now have Larissa Jacobs uh, with us. Welcome to the show, Larissa. Thank you, Victor. It's such an honor to be on the show today. I really appreciate your inviting me. We're very excited to have you to speak about uh, your personal journey, your background, and how you've been able to start this uh, movement and what the movement is about. So why don't you start telling us by uh, giving us a little bit about your your background. Uh, where are you from and what are your family roots? Well, thanks. Um, I actually enjoy that question. It's a little bit unusual. I am from Houston, Texas. Um, you know, I am the child of a Holocaust survivor from Germany. Uh, my dad, who's deceased now, he was from Frankfurt, uh, Frankfurt am Main in Germany and came here at age 13 in 1938. Refugee, a survivor from uh, Holocaust Germany. And, you know, unfortunately, the that not good movement for Nazism was getting started there. And so he came to the United States really to survive with his family. And then my mother was from the Philippines, uh, from an island called Cebu. And so very, uh, very unusual background. And I grew up right here in Houston, Texas. So not a whole lot of other people uh, with my uh, ethnic background here. <laughs> that is definitely a very interesting uh, combination of ethnic background. Eres media latina. O sea, bueno, decimos que mi mamá es filipina y yo creo que ella uh, tuvo un uh, um, abuelo que, que fue uh, español. Okay. Pero el resto de la familia, pura filipina. So, Perfecto. Southeast Asia. Yeah. Perfecto. <laughs> so, tell us, uh, Larissa, as a tricultural person uh, living in Houston, how have you been able to adapt to uh, the current situation as far as ethnic uh, assimilation or acculturation in Houston, which is considered to be the melting pot of the country? We certainly are leading in terms of diversity. Um, you know, I know that in any one neighborhood of Houston, you can hear so many different languages. And I just, I have a lot of respect and a lot of empathy for where people come from. And um, I know that being different and growing up here in Houston in the 70s and the 80s, 1970s, 1980s, maybe when I looked around, there were not a lot of uh, biracial children and, and certainly 
you know, even during that time, you really didn't hear a lot of Spanish being spoken or a lot of different languages. Uh, even the Filipino population in, in Houston was very, very small. So, and even smaller for Germans, you rarely heard anybody speaking German. And so, you know, I think growing up, feeling very different uh, was probably in a, in a strange way a little bit good for me in terms of the work that I do in communities now because I, I have empathy and I try to understand that you know what we think of someone it might not be true for example I was doing community work in an area in southwest Houston once and I we came just with so many materials in Spanish uh, only to realize when we got to the community partner organization, most of the people there spoke Quechua. So I think you just have to take a deeper look and be sensitive that what you think you see is maybe different and, and just uh, be respectful. What were some of the challenges that you faced uh, growing up in Houston, going to school, uh, having a, a name that was not <laughs> as American as Jones or Smith or, or any of the other American names? Oh, I love this question. Oh my gosh, uh, Victor, that's such a great question. My last name, my maiden name was Xanders with a Z. So I was always at the end of the line because we alphabetized everything back then. So you just got in the line according to your last name. So I, I remember, I have very clear memories of being the last child to line up. I also remember being blatant racism and, and it was just sort of a part of daily life. Um, now I think people are, are talking more about it, but I think in the 70s and 80s, it was just, I don't wanna say normal, but it was a little bit normal to to just hear a racial slur. And, and, and I don't know that anyone took action. I, uh, you know, I remember being young and I we were shopping, I think at an outdoor market and somebody said, go home to where you came, where you come from. And it was like, um, <laughs> I actually come from Houston, Texas. So, you know, those are kind of uh, old and painful memories. But at the same time, trying to explain to people, for example, my name, uh, Larissa, is actually a Russian name. And so we were already different, but, you know, my parents were kind of intellectual and they chose names that were very different. And so trying to explain to people uh, that I was half Filipino, half German, and my dad was Jewish, and that to have this Russian name was, was always kind of a little bit amusing. When I got older and I learned Spanish, I realized that Larissa is actually the laughter, yes. which is kind of nice kind of sweet. I, I actually kind of really like that. But I grew up and I didn't know that. I didn't know that my name, you know, phonetically meant the laughter. So that was something I kind of enjoy when I got older, uh, when somebody told me. But um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I definitely, again, I've had different experiences. And I think it's built my mind, in my mind, has given me a lot of empathy uh, to just understand that that sometimes people are uh, come from different backgrounds and think different things, and we probably need to be open-minded about, uh, you know, who we're who we're with, and where How they come from. How do you from. think that that kind of uh, environment and that kind of family dynamic prepared you for the work that you're doing now? Um, I work in many different communities, and I really try to be a good listener. I try not to judge people. I, I have felt. The pain of being judged, clearly being different is never easy. You know, there are people that might uh, not, you know, look a certain way, but they also think differently. And so I try to respect that each individual has their own way of thinking, their own way of being. And I work very hard to try to be a better listener. I'm 
you know, and certainly have made mistakes as well in the community. But I had a wonderful mentor when I was at the YMCA. I worked there for many years. And that mentor really trained across the board, trained so many of us that were working in communities to be a good listener and to listen with empathy. And I remember when I started to take these trainings, I wasn't very good at it. And I remember thinking, gosh, I'm, I'm kind of struggling because I really want to tell people how to live. I want to tell them how to eat and tell them what to do. I, you know, I think I know all these things. And as I continue to get trained, I realize that it's probably better if you just say less and be a good listener. And if people tell you that they're struggling with their health or with other things, uh, just to be open and just, just let them have those feelings, let them have those thoughts. If they're interested in eating differently or moving more and they want your opinion, they will let you know. But for me, listening as we go into communities has been very helpful. Um, you know, I do a lot of work in uh, areas with the housing authority of the city. And I realize when I'm in those areas, I probably don't fully understand what some of the residents are dealing with, but I can at least give them space and just let them express themselves. And I can try to understand. And if there's work to be done, I can try to roll my sleeves up and do it. So that's kind of been my approach. Um, and, it, you know, I think it's kind of working. I mean, you can't go wrong if you're listening well. All right. So the YMCA was your your proving ground for working with different uh, ethnic groups and promoting different uh, wellness programs. How did you get interested in doing community outreach and, and this kind of uh, nonprofit work? Well, you know, at the YMCA, I think I was first attracted to it because it was such a nice facility, nice building, and I could exercise there. And I will say some, I will brag a little bit about the organization. I fell in love with the way they serve communities, and I just got wrapped up in it. So, you know, I had just finished my, uh, my master's degree in business, and, you know, I didn't know really what I wanted to do with my career. And so I had worked as a volunteer in the Spring Branch ISD school district, and there was a YMCA within that district. And so you know, I was volunteering a lot. I had two small kids. I decided I just finished my MBA and I was going to go to work somewhere. And so I started out teaching exercise and quickly was kind of pulled aside. And they were like, we have these family programs and it's you know, we bring in community members from all over. They don't have to be members of the Y, but we have these programs and it's all about healthy living. And I fell in love with it. But it took me a couple of years to realize the YMCA was actually doing work in apartment complexes and really meeting people where they are. And I just fell in love with it. And so I was there for a, a number of years um, and moving from part-time to full-time and just getting deeper and deeper into the work. And I guess my favorite work was some of the um, pantry work that they were doing in some uh, apartment communities. And then I started also working with health systems to do outreach in these apartment communities, whether it was vaccine compliance, getting people to, to um, do their vaccine and be educated about vaccines for children. Or sometimes we would work on food pantry work together. And I started putting together partnerships for those um, deliverables. And I, I just loved it. I I loved all the work that we did. We also prevented drowning. So 
We would go to apartment complexes with swimming pools, but where perhaps the children didn't know how to swim. And so we saved lives by preventing drowning, by teaching. And it was when I was in those community spaces and again, just listening to what people were dealing with. Sometimes the families would would get my cell phone number. They'll call me later and say, you know, I, I don't know what to do, but my children don't have shoes. And I didn't know if you knew what to do about that. And you know, these families came from all over. I mean, you know, Brazil, Mexico, Russia, uh, just all different countries. And it was just fascinating to me how many cultures we had working together, living together. But the need was there for all kinds of social services and things. And I just fell in love with it. I, I remember thinking I, in a given day, I just can't get enough of this. It, it just, you would leave and your heart would just be so full. That for me was kind of like, wow, I think I'm just addicted to people, but <laughs> it was really great. You discovered your purpose and that's why you're so good at it. <laughs> I have a question for you about your yeah. experience at the Y. Of all the years you spent there, if your whole life at, at the Y flashed before you, what were some of the greatest challenges or what was the most difficult challenge that you overcame? Oh, what a wonderful question. I really struggled to work on teams. I think, to be honest, that many of us have good hearts and we're very driven to serve. But if you're not considering the perspective of the other person on your team, whether it's someone you supervise or someone who supervises you, no matter how driven you are and you think you're going to save the world, you will get nowhere. So <laughs> that was a really good lesson for me. I would sometimes try to push ideas. And in such a large organization, you're really working across many departments. And so uh, it took me a few years. I had a, an absolutely fantastic boss and friend and mentor. And I would watch her. I would observe her going through conversations you know, learning to kind of uh, smooth the way, let's say, because I would go to her and say, well, I want this thing and I don't know how to move it forward. And I know that I'm right and I need to have this thing done. And she would say, well, you know, let's see what we can do about it. And I would observe her and she was so good with people and so reasonable about kind of in, it's internal negotiation. It's listening and then it's making what you want to do very clear. And that for me was a great experience. I really learned a lot from her and, and, and to this day really have remained very close with her. It's coalition building of your internal customers. It really is, isn't it? It's coalition yes. building. That's exactly what it is. You, you can only move at the speed of trust. Correct. Um, I've made many mistakes, but I think one of the things that I am trying to do better is to just slow down a bit. And if someone needs more information, and let's say my style is that I don't need a lot of information, I can kind of understand what we're doing and I want to move forward. But I, I really need to be respectful that the other person has a different style and they want the information or the details. And so I have to discipline myself to slow down and work with others. And, and so it's, it's been a process. I'm still working on it. Well, 2023 is your year because in Chinese calendar, it's the year of, of the rabbit and uh, it's <laughs> the year to develop patience. <laughs> I think the best leaders know how to discipline themselves, don't you? Yes, absolutely. All <laughs> right. From, from the why you went to work at the 
Heart Association? Yes, I went to the American Heart Association. There was an opening for the Vice President of Health Strategies. Um, in all honesty, I probably was not fully qualified, but they it was a stretch assignment. How about that? They trusted me and they were really wonderful to me and treated me really well. And, you know, there was a stretch assignment of being a VP. And I remember uh, crying when I left the YMCA because I was so close with my boss and with, you know, my department. And, and I felt uh, also, you know, I felt guilty because I felt like I had a lot of work to do in the community. So I went to the Heart Association and carried a little bit of that guilt with me and then realized the first week there, oh, they are working with some of the same communities. So we just keep going. So that was such a great surprise just to get there and realize, ah, I can continue the work. So I said to uh, the CEO of the Y, who's a friend, I said, you know, we continue the work. It's just your paycheck is drawn from a different company but we work together to continue to serve communities. And so I kind of carried that with me and still carry it today. We, we all work together. Wherever you draw your paycheck is almost secondary to the purpose which you have, which is to serve people. Very well put. Larissa, by now, as a result of working at the Y and the Heart Association, you now have mastered your coalition building skills. <laughs> and forming an alliance with major stakeholders in the community to catapult you even to a larger degree. For people listening to the show, and we have a national audience, what is it that it takes to be able to do that uh, within a company if you want to become a center of influence if you want to get things done, what would you say are the absolute keys that a person must keep in mind in order to develop that ability to form synergies internally and externally within any organization? Oh, what a good good question. I may have to think on that for a minute. I think clearly listening, as I said earlier, is important, but I, I also think many of us that want to serve have an internal drive. We are intrinsically motivated. We, we wake up, I, I wake up in the morning and all I think about is what, I wonder what I can do to get people healthy today, not just for my own health, but I wonder what we can do better. How can we do it better? And these are deep burning questions that I've lived with for my whole life. What can we do to make our health, our daily lives better. And I think as we build coalition, we build movements and we work with many partners, sometimes we have to be very clear about what our purpose is and who it's benefiting. Sometimes we have to be told that we are wrong and that's very important to take that feedback. I think sometimes if I could wave a magic wand, I would change, you know, what's in our environment. I would change the restaurants, change what's on the menu, change everything. Of course, I in my head, I think I'm right. But it's so important to slow down and, and listen to other people's perspectives. And sometimes you have to push a little bit, too, and say, I think that this is what we should do, and, and here's why. And sometimes it's also a matter of just staying put when you really 
think that you do see something accurately, but you just need to really fact check yourself. You need to check your way of thinking. It's very likely sometimes when we think something, we may have missed what the other person was trying to say. And then on the other hand, if we keep going and we keep having conversation and some truth is emerging that you see and that you know is really so, and you believe that you need to say what you think to stand up for other people or for doing what's right or doing things the right way, then you kind of have to say it and be okay with some pushback and just be okay with it if you're doing the right thing. And that's been very hard for me. I may have some people-pleasing tendencies. Um, but I, I think sometimes learning also that, you know, this is what we know will build toward better health. And this is what we need to do and just staying very firm. So I think those are some lessons that I'm still learning today. But I think also in coalition building and, and building alliances, um, building good relationships. I know that the American Leadership Forum is a wonderful organization and I joined them. Oh gosh, I think I'm trying to remember what year I started. I, I probably 2018, 19. I'm losing track. And when I entered into that organization as a senior fellow, and I'm from class 46, so shout out to class 46, <laughs> American Leadership <laughs> Forum. <laughs> They'll call it ALF, right? But yes. when I got into ALF was when we, we did some listening trainings and that was helpful. And again, that, that maybe was something I had done before, but we also were in the room with very strong opinions, strong leaders who, who sometimes saw things their way. And so it was uh, kind of a little bit like building relationships 101. And so a little bit of push forward, a little bit of let them push back and, and just trying to build good relationships. And I think that we need to sometimes build the relationships, but again, uh, sometimes the people that do the most work are at the lower, lower part of the ladder. And so I think relationships matter all the way from the CEO or the president, but all, all also in the middle, middle, middle level management, and also sometimes boots on the ground, because you can get a lot of things done. You're listening to Latinos Who Thrive with special guest Larissa Jacobs. We'll be right back. Do you want to thrive in 2023? Are you ready to make positive changes in your life? It's important to take control of your life and make intentional choices that lead you towards success and happiness. A coach or mentor can be a valuable resource in helping you to set goals, develop a plan, and stay motivated as you work towards creating the life you desire. If you're interested in seeking out a coach or mentor, it's important to do your research and find someone who aligns with your values and has experience and expertise in the areas you're looking to improve. For more than three decades Victor Escalante has been coaching and training entrepreneurs to live the life they always wanted. Contact Victor today at victorescalante.com or call him at 713-992-8279. Your destiny is calling to you to start your journey towards a designer life. Take action today. We're now returning you to Latinos Who Thrive with special guest Larissa Jacobs. What authors or what uh, models for community building did you study, subscribe to, or influence you in a large way? Oh, gosh, I'll have to think about that. I am really going to think on this. 
I follow a lot of people on social media, but they might be more in the science space and the health space. But I also love some writers that have done great work in terms of um, efficiencies. I'm kind of a little bit in love with, you know, daily habits and things like that. So uh, I have to think about that one. I thought that you're a big fan of Brene Brown. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. That helps me. You're jogging my memory here. I do enjoy Brene Brown. I I really enjoyed uh, some of her work. And um, she talks a lot, actually, about being vulnerable, but also kind of not just, I don't know, I'm going to do a terrible job of of paraphrasing what what she teaches, but kind of not walking away, but just kind of, she calls it maybe embracing the suck. Uh, and it, so it is important to stay put. If you really, really want to do good, um, do kind of have to stay in the conversations. I recently went through a, a program called the Houston 2036 Task Force on Equity. And conversations can get very difficult. And, and, and even I, I think that I'm, you know, I think that I know how to talk to people, but would say things that were just um you know, without meaning to maybe say the wrong thing and then you regret it, but you have to go back and just always make sure that the people you're working with are okay and don't make it about you. Just, you have to go back and say, hey, you know, I didn't mean to express myself in that way. Uh, we're all trying to work toward equity. I, I Maybe I misspoke or I wasn't being a good listener, but I want to make sure you're okay. And so I think just a little bit of that dance is necessary when you want to do good in the world. I can see have served you because that's really trying to uh, grease the friction that just everyday life creates <laughs> people from different mindsets, different hierarchical levels, and different uh, motivations, uh, goals, or agendas. Uh, by doing that, you're actually putting in some social equity into the relationship so that there's no friction that is generated uh, into the future. Exactly, exactly. It really is about not being afraid to be wrong. I've worked really hard on taking feedback. I, I actually have to say when I was younger, I didn't take it well at all, but I set my mind through through many readings because, you know, again, I, I love to read and I, I, I follow different, um, you know, different thought leaders. I, I'm really, I'm kind of into a lot of the lifestyle um, you know, podcasters right now and things like that. And, uh, but anyway, I think just, uh, being a lifelong learner and being willing to hear that maybe the way you thought things were is wrong. And then, um, not being afraid to stay in the room. If, if the conversation does get a little bit tough, I think that's something I've had to work at. You know, I will say something having the cultures I grew up with, I I wouldn't say we were encouraged, uh, at least, you know, having one parent from Southeast Asia, we were not encouraged necessarily to say everything that we think. Uh, You know, we just, it was kind of like, you don't need to argue. You don't need to say everything you think. So my tendency is actually probably to not say things that I'm thinking, but I'm learning to just kind of, if I think that something's important to speak up, um, but, and then I can handle it if people don't, don't really agree either, but at least we can have the conversation. And if we're going to do good in the world, we need to stay in that conversation, not walk away. Yeah, that skill is a double-edged sword because if you keep quiet, then you become a doormat. But if you have to uh, prove to everyone that you're right, then you end up uh, severing uh, ties, social ties, internally and externally. Isn't that the truth? Yep, so true. All right. So 
this is how you have been successful at springboarding into the position that you're now heading. So tell us about that. Well, thank you. I have just been so fortunate to work with a team of experts. Um, this team was, was part of my group. I, I did not know them before I started this Houston 2036 Task Force on Equity Experience. But the, these uh, experts, are, they're, they're just so smart. I mean, you know, one of them is a doctor. The other came from uh, Ivy League school and worked at the library system. And uh, one of them is a big leader at AARP. And one is in the sheriff's office. There's just different people that I've uh, worked with in, on this team. And we formed a team as part of a, a pitch for new and innovative ideas. And that team is Fit Houston. Uh, a lot of the people on my original team are, are, are on the board of Fit Houston now, and I just really appreciate uh, being able to work with them as thought partners. You know, the experience of the, the Houston 2036 Task Force on Equity um, and the emergence of Fit Houston as a nonprofit, it really came out of this question of what can we do to make Houston more equitable in the year 2036? And Larry Payne who really spearheaded this whole experience has really been asking that question for many years. So even though we started the experience, uh, I guess it was about a year ago that we started the task force, he had already been having public forums and things like that to talk about equity uh, by the year 2036. Um, you know, he'd been talking about that for quite a while. And so finally, the culmination was this task force, and he brought together 36 leaders from around Houston and we divided into six teams and we handled different topics such as education um, and environment and health. And so my team worked on health and we talked a lot about health equity. And so, you know, we started out by just going to the whiteboard. And I remember thinking like, this is like, now I need to use my listening skills because I might not agree with everything that's being said in, in my group and also in the larger room of 36 or more than 36 people, everyone has opinions about how to serve, how to best, you know, serve Houston. And so there are many issues, right, that we need to deal with to try to serve Houston. And so, you know, we decided to come from a kind of a what you can, what can you do kind of an angle. So we know there are a lot of problems in health and we can talk about that all day long, but what can we do? You know, what would be one thing that everybody could do that could have no cost to it, no barriers? And so we came up with and we were doing systems mapping on the whiteboard and we were, you know, we were talking about things like, you know, uh, expanding healthcare care and, and Medicaid expansion, which hasn't happened yet in Texas. And we talked about food insecurity. We talked about all these things. And, then, you know, it was kind of like, well, gosh, you know, the city and the county have built these gorgeous parks. And they built these beautiful trails. And as we kept on working, and I mean, we were meeting on nights and weekends, and we were ordering dinner together, and we were talking, 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 what can we do? And it was like, you know, movement, movement is medicine. You know, exercise is medicine. And we all know this. We know that it can prevent, be a, a, one of the preventative uh, factors in cancer. And we know that it can help stave off diabetes, hypertension. We know that it can control diabetes hypertension if you are diagnosed. We know that it can make you think better. We know that it can make you feel better. And we kind of identified this and we decided to wrap our arms and our, our hearts around physical activity. And we pitched it out there. We, we, I think we were working for about six months on this and finally, finally had a pitch. And 
we pitched out this strategy that if we were to install free outdoor gyms across the city of Houston and also have a coalition, a wellness initiative type move, you know, movement that we create, what would that look like across Houston? And we had a panel of judges and they were all super smart people, you know, big careers and a lot of knowledge. And I mean, the feedback was unanimous and they were like, you know, the strategy is really strong. So uh, after that, you know, I think we were kind of sitting back as a team and going, you know, what just happened here? <laughs> and it was kind of like, that felt like, that felt like magic. That felt really good. But now what? So uh, after the competition and, and we kind of had like this winning pitch, uh, a couple of people went on vacation and we took a couple of weeks off and we came back together and I said, you know, I think that we could probably make this a nonprofit. And so that's how it grew. And um, it's been nothing but wonderful. It's been a great journey. Many, many new people have joined in the movement and it, it's just been a labor of love, quite frankly. So the first phase was the development of, of this program, which is the unconscious optimism. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Right out of the gate, though, in the execution of this program, did you face any obstacles, challenges to where you developed some, some unconscious uh, negativism as a result of reality in the theory meets the ground and you discover that you had to tweak it or the landscape didn't look as well as what you had projected. Tell us about that. So true, isn't it? Because you want to make sure if you have what you think is the world's best idea, you want to make sure that any, that you're not the only person that wants it. So I do remember being very surprised that, you know, we would have high level conversations and, and I would set up coffees and meetings with experts in health. I mean, you know, these people I would meet with were so much higher in terms of their title and their job and their education than I was. But I said, let's meet for coffee. And I kept making appointments around Houston to meet different people and ask the question. And I was surprised there was very little resistance and that that kind of shocked me. But I also remember there were just a couple of comments that were like, you know, uh, not necessarily when I was talking with with people high up in the field, but just in general, people that were, you know, in, in different circles, not necessarily health experts, but it did come up. A couple of people said, how do you know that when people don't have food and they're food insecure and they have big, big pressing problems or they're working several jobs, how do you know that what you're talking about is, is desirable at all? How do you know they want it? And so I said, uh, that does sound like a good, a good thing to think about. Again, I don't have to be right. So when someone tells you, how do you even know this? And it just sounds like you have this lofty idea, everybody exercise, you know, what a lofty idea. You don't have to argue. You can stop for a minute and say, I'm curious and, and, and a little detached from the question. I think maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't know. What can I do to find out? So I went to different communities. I talked with city council members. Uh, and it's, it's great. If you have something you want to do or you want to serve the community, I'll tell you what, all the city council members are incredibly approachable in my, in my experience. So I just made appointments, talked with them, asked them what they thought, and they would give me great feedback. And then I went into churches and I went into, uh, you know, clinical spaces and I went into communities. I went into housing authority, uh, you know, communities, apartments, schools, 
And I asked everybody, everybody that would even listen to me, you know, what do you think about movement exercise as medicine? And everywhere I would go, people would light up. And I, I don't care if they were, you know, dealing with big problems, you know, uh, living on, on very little income, very, very little income and visiting pantries and whatnot. They all said the same thing. I just feel better when I exercise and everybody would light up and get very positive. And I, I will tell you, Victor, that shocked me. I wasn't expecting that kind of response. And it was a lot of times people would say, well, can you, can you find us an exercise instructor? Can you start, start a walking group here? And I would think, oh, I don't, I don't have the staff or the bandwidth for that. So that was sort of the litmus test and let me know that we were on the right track. From that phase to go into into realistic optimism because uh you were getting traction you were yeah. uh you were hearing the right uh messages from the community uh to get the buy-in that was necessary in order to launch your program exactly and i think everybody maybe i i can't speak for all you know people um, like me, but I'm the child of immigrants and I always have a little bit of a voice in my head that says, I don't know if you can do this, you know, maybe you're not good enough to lead this effort. But each time that voice would come out, I would say, imposter well, syndrome. the battle is within yourself in order to have success uh, by overcoming that inner critic. Yes, exactly. And, you know, you, you think about uh, the times you were growing up and maybe you didn't feel you belonged because you were different or maybe you know, you just didn't fit in. And then you think, well, hey, what's the worst that could happen is I'll try to do this and try to bring people together. And, you know, if I don't do things right, I'm not alone. I have many, many friends who will, you know, help us find the way. And again, it's just a little bit of humility and say, well, maybe I am deluded, but let's keep going. Let's try this. And so you say optimism and you know, I try to start every day with a, a kind of a vision of what can we accomplish today? And maybe that little imposter syndrome voice, maybe they're right, but maybe they're a lot of wrong. <laughs> so you just keep marching forward. Your inner critic was a total mismatch for your inner ninja. But <laughs> <laughs> it had skills. Uh, Somebody was. Much more efficient and much more lethal than your inner critic that your inner critic came up. <laughs> I will say one thing too, um, you know, I had the incredible fortune of being able to build strong partnerships with people that are super smart exactly, and yeah. really capable. And so I think some of my wonderful volunteers from uh, the Texas Heart Institute and just, just incredible thought partners who see they have the vision and they can execute on a vision. So you don't really need to do all the implementation. If you have an idea that takes flight because a community wants it. And then you can bridge the gap between community members and people that have resources and uh, scientific knowledge, like uh, my friends at the Texas Heart Institute is pretty amazing. And then, you know, even other great uh, graduates too of the American Leadership Forum, just, you know, you know, Imagina Communications. I mean, just leaning on people that are experts in marketing and messaging, health messaging, and not being afraid to say, look, uh, what we're trying to put out there in education is too complicated and it doesn't sound right. So let's change it. And even hearing that my ideas sometimes just aren't the best, that's okay. It's okay. Let's work together and get to the best ideas. We don't have to be geniuses. All we have to do is just do the best we can. Yeah. 
It's true. All right. So let's drill down into the specifics of this initiative. Tell us what exactly the, it entails. Well, so we are working on free outdoor gyms across the city. We are just still talking with different stakeholders. Um, we're working on letters of support, and I'm working on um, trying to ascertain where where the funding will come from. And so working with city and county officials on that, um, this will not you know, put gyms out of business by any means. We're looking at areas where there's no access. So if there's a gap and there's no gym or people can't afford it, chances are there is no gym there anyway. So we're looking at a company called FitLot installs free outdoor gyms. And so um, they don't do the work for free, but you know, we raise the funds we install and then you pro that provides a, a free gym and outdoor experience for someone who wants to be active. So I'm working on that. The next thing is our health campaign. Now we have a health campaign right now called hashtag walk 30. It's not an original idea. Walking 30 minutes a day is really kind of just comes from the Centers for Disease Control. Um, CDC says we need to walk 150 minutes in a week. When I was doing health coaching for the YMCA, we used to tell people walk five times a week, 30 minutes each time. That adds up to 150 minutes. It would be so surprising to see when you say that how people go, oh my gosh, that's so easy. And I hadn't thought about it, but I can do that. Even if you do five to 10 minutes of walking, that is fantastic. That is a win. You have won. You have seized the day. Um, if you cannot walk or you don't walk and you chair do chair exercise, that's a win. That's a huge win. So hashtag walk 30 is just a concept. And the mayor really liked it and made a beautiful statement on it. And we had President Couture of the University of Houston. We're interviewing the president of Rice University tomorrow. So lots of leaders, uh, Claudia Aguirre, who's the most amazing, amazing CEO from Baker Ripley. Um, you know, she got really excited about it. And everybody has a story. Everybody has a story about walking. And what I found is that concept of walking is very universal. You know, Dr. Ann Barnes, who's um, she's the president of Episcopal Health Foundation, and she's um, someone that I've collaborated collaborated with over the years. And she used to be on on a, a volunteer at the Y. And you know, she really had this idea that if everybody walked, it would really reduce and control disease. Um, she had seen patients over her career. Um, she used to say to me, some of these patients could have been CEOs but they lost a limb or something like that to basically to diabetes or, or, or whatnot. So, you know, I think this concept of just being physically active and the lifestyle piece of it is so important. As we keep going, uh, because people love the hashtag walk 30 campaign, we will have other campaigns, but we want to start with something that people can wrap their brains around, which is really just walking a little bit is go outside of your house and walk 30 minutes or whatever you can do for the day. We also have an app called the MoveSpring app. If you download the free app and use the code FITHOUSTON, one word, FITHOUSTON, you can be part of the challenge for free. And we will do a drawing for an Apple Watch for anyone who downloads the app. Um, and then the last thing we're, we're working on is a, really just a wellness coalition. So we've had a meeting uh, with different partners, clinical and community partners. Um, that is the Wellness Coalition, the Wellness Initiative we're putting together, and it's just about healthy living. What can we do? You know, when you look at experts like Hope Clinic, 
they're doing incredible work in wellness. They do walk with the doc. They do, they have a, the most amazing chef, Chef Christopher Lott does incredible healthy cooking and he's doing amazing work in the community and then in the A-Leaf area and beyond with healthy cooking. So uh, I have the benefit of working with him and he's part of our wellness initiative. And so anything that, that he can teach us about what he's doing, the other clinics and community members and community organizations can, can learn from as well. So just, just really good grassroots efforts, actually, um, that are part of the movement. You're doing great work in the community. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind, Larissa? Well, I think about that every day. And I think about what the rest of what my work life will be like and, and how much I want to give. And I think I will feel good if I get to the end of my working days, um, which, by the way, I'm planning to work until I'm 99. So I just wanted to put that out in the universe. So there is no retirement here. Name I'm just it and claim it. Yes. There you go. So, but I think that if I could look back and see that I did something, it's really creating healthier communities, supporting healthier communities. I know when I was health coaching, I would see people get their, really reclaim their lives. And I would think that's one person who figured out how to eat healthy and figured out how to move more. And, you know, he's doing so well, or she's doing so great. Look at how great she looks. And I, I just want to multiply that. So, you know, I, I hope that working together with other great players um, in the health space, I hope that we can do some good and that you know, 20 years from now, or whenever we get to Houston 2036, which I think is going to be 13 years from now. Did I get that right? Um, I hope that we can look back and say that we did some good and that communities are eating healthy and moving more. I'm going to fast forward you all the way to the end of your life. What is your gravestone going to say? The first thing that comes to mind is uh, she cared deeply for others. That's you a know, good one. She just, she cared deeply for other people. That's a good uh, purpose and that's a good uh, model to live by. Thank you. Any final words, uh, Larissa? Just wanna express gratitude to you, Victor. You've been such an amazing listener yourself. You clearly could teach me a few things about listening. And um, I just really appreciate your belief in what Fit Houston is doing and that you would take the time to to be such a great listener, be so open and allow me this space to to tell you what's been going on with Fit Houston and with my life. And I'm I'm very grateful. We have to have you back uh, to tell <laughs> us about your progression in the community and any new initiatives you have, because you have Thank that you. kind of staying power that people want to know, people want to hear from you. So you have an open invitation at Latinos Who Thrive. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being a guest, Larissa. We look forward to your continued success, and I hope to meet you soon. Thanks so much, Victor. You're doing great work, too. Really enjoy the show. Thank you. Thank you.